Hello and welcome back to the Calvary Tabernacle Young Adults Podcast. We're so glad you're listening and we hope you continue to do so. This episode is a lesson taught by the venerable Andrew Herbst and is entitled Strong Tower of the Lord. Please enjoy. at the IBC orientation at IBC tonight, so that's why they're not here. But I do want to give him honor and, and say how much I appreciate him leading this group. And I think we, we all really appreciate both of them and all the things that they've done for this group and, and helping us grow, grow together in unity, grow us together as ministers and fellowship. And I really appreciate them for all they do. And of course, I love Pastor Mooney so much and am thankful for his investment not just in this church, you know, the movement, IBC, CCS, all these things. His hand is just all over the place. So I'm, I'm very thankful for Pastor Mooney. And we're going to turn, I will have most of the scriptures up here on the board, but um, we're going to be turning to Proverbs 18.10. And let's just jump into it. It says, the name of the Lord, everyone say, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runneth into it and is safe. Amen. So today I want to talk, uh, let's, I'm going to read that just one more time because I like to read this first. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runneth into it and is safe. And so I want to talk today about the strong tower of the Lord. So, uh, uh, I mean, I've kind of been working on this lesson actually for a couple of years, but I started to just have a, just a really basic question of why is the name of Jesus so powerful? Nothing too deep. You know, just just why. So why do we pray in the name of Jesus? Why do we baptize in Jesus name? And, and why is there so much emphasis on the name of Jesus in, in our movement specifically? Sometimes people treat the name of Jesus like it's a magic word. You just say it and things miraculously happen. But why is that? And sometimes I think we need to have an understanding that the name of Jesus is not a magic word, but there's something that's tied to it. So this is, uh, I will warn you, this is a lengthy lesson. I told Brother Kevin, I said, this is like a very long lesson. I'll try to condense it to 45 minutes. He said, that's fine, just do it. They'll be okay. And then he didn't show up. So again, I'm just making fun of him a little bit. But um, we will be reading a lot of scripture, but I'm going to try to just give us the highlights. So because my goal is through this lesson is that as our understanding grows, and even as, as I teach this, I've taught this lesson a few times, it still impacts me every time I teach it. Because what I'm hoping happens is that as you are reading throughout the Bible, some of these verses will come to your mind and you're going to say, that's what this is about. Because what we're going to see is this idea that, I'm, that we're going to talk about today, it's going to start in Genesis, but it goes all the way to Revelation. There's not a break, there's not a, a divergence between the Old and New Testament, but we're going to see this nice thread all the way through. So that's what I'm hoping we can uh, come up with today or, or establish today. So all the way back in Genesis chapter 4, there, there's a, a particular patriarch, and uh, his name, uh, it says that he was born, and then it says, then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. So what we're going to see all the way back in the Old Testament, 
from the days just after Adam to uh, Abraham, all the way through in Genesis, we're going to see this very important detail. God's name is always tied to relationship. And our understanding should grow with the idea that the word covenant and testament mean the same thing. So when we say relationship, we're talking about a covenant. We're talking about a testament. That's why we say the old testament. We say the new testament. We're talking about the old relationship and the new relationship. And the, there's no difference in that God's name is always tied to relationship. The problem, though, is that the fall alienated us, humans, from relationship with God. When Adam and Eve fell, they were pushed out of God's presence. They were pushed out of the garden, and they did not have connection with God. They were alienated. Ephesians 2, uh, Paul is writing, and he says, uh, at one time we were alienated from God by the, but what was in our head, our actions, our sins, all of these things drove us away from God. So this is the, the theme of the Bible. I know I've, I've kind of shared this in other lessons, but I think this is so powerful as we look through the Bible to understand that the theme of the Bible is God seeking relationship with mankind. Because as we lost relationship, God was always trying to make a way for us to be back with him. In the midst of the, the sin, in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the curse, in the midst of death, all of these things, God was trying to make a way for us to be connected to him. Man kept messing up, but God kept providing. Amen. So then, let's skip ahead a little bit to the story of Abram or Abraham. And it says in Genesis 12:1 that God calls out to Abram and he says, Get out of your father's land and come in to a land that I'm going to show you. There are several promises given to Abraham throughout these several chapters. And God says, through you, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Through you, a promise is going to take place. And it even says that Abraham believed on God. And in several places, it says that Abraham called upon the name of the Lord. Again, the name that is tied to relationship. So what we're going to see is that through Abraham, God was trying to bring people back to God. Through Abraham's family, everyone was going to be blessed with this new relationship. So let's fast forward about 500 years later. What do we see? The promises to Abraham are partially fulfilled. He does have a lot of descendants, but where are they? They're in Egypt. We all learn this story since, you know, we were just wee children. And we know that uh, the, his descendants are in Egypt. They're in bondage. It's, it's a very chaotic time because the people are wondering, where is our Redeemer? Where is the Lord at? And so God finds another man to fulfill his will. God finds another person. And what we see is in Exodus chapter 3. Moses is there at the burning bush. And Moses says, the people, when I go to them, they're going to ask me a question. They're going to ask me, who sent you? What's his name? And God replies with this very famous phrase here. He says, I am that I am. Tell them I am has sent you. Now, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. Maybe one day, but not right now. But we can say this phrase in three different ways. We can say it in English is, I was who I was, I am who I am, and I shall be who I shall be. Now, why this is so amazing is because this is showing that God is the unchanging one. The unchanging one. And where, uh, 
we get the statement, I am that I am, this is where we get the Old Testament name for God, and that is Yahweh. We're not even really sure if that's how you pronounce it. That's how some people think it's pronounced. But uh, how many of you ever heard of the name of Yahweh? Or how about Jehovah? They actually mean the same thing. And we're not going to get into the reason why there's two names that mean the same thing. But the King James Version is actually uh, gives us a little bit of a hint into something here. And that's whenever you see the, the word LORD in all caps. Whenever you see the word LORD or GOD in all caps, that means the Bible is talking about the name of God, the name Yahweh. So you'll, in the rest of this lesson, you'll hear me say Yahweh. I won't say Jehovah. I'm just going to try to consistently say Yahweh. Now, why this is so amazing as the unchanging one, because what God is trying to tell Moses is that, listen, if I was God yesterday, I'm going to be God today. And if I'm God today, I'm going to be God tomorrow. And Moses, if I was a redeemer yesterday, I'm going to be a redeemer today. If I'm a redeemer today, I'm going to be a redeemer tomorrow. And you can take this throughout the whole list of things. If God saved you yesterday, he can keep you saved today and he can keep you saved tomorrow. If God delivered you yesterday, he's going to be a deliverer today, and he's going to be a deliverer tomorrow. We can just go through a whole list of things. If God provided for you, he's going to keep on being a provider. And that's what God is trying to get Moses to understand. This is a past, present, and a future salvation. And it's all tied to his name. Amen. So, Brother Zach, I'm going to have you read a couple verses here on the board. By the name God Almighty, but by the name Jehovah or Yahweh, I was not known to Abraham. Now, wait a second. If you go back, if you go back to the prior chapters in Genesis, it specifically says that Abraham called on the name of Yahweh. So what does that mean when it says that Abraham did not know the name Yahweh if he spoke the name Yahweh? Well, we'll come back to that. Uh, verse 6, 6, please. The underlines are mine. Okay. You, know, you, you ever read that in the book? It says italics mine. Well, the underlines are mine. So when it says, I am the Lord, I want to point this out again here, that it says, I'm going to bring you out to bring you into something better. So just like the promise that God gave to Abraham, come out of this land so I can bring you into something better, God is giving the same promises to Moses. And these, these things are going to be fulfilled here. Let's, let's uh, read verse 7 here. And I will take you to me for a people, and I will be to you a God. And ye shall know that I am the Lord your God, which bringeth you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Now, this passage really does get me excited because this, this passage is about several things. Number one, it is about relationship. It's about ownership. It's about the people belonging to God. And this people, God is going to deliver them. God is going to save them. What is God trying to do? He's trying to establish a relationship with this group of people through salvation. Let's do one more. And I will bring you in unto the land concerning the which I did swear to give it to Abraham. I am the Lord. 
I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I am the one. I promised Abraham this. I'm promising it to you, and it's going to happen. So let's go back to this idea of God's name. Now, the name Yahweh in the Old Testament is always tied to his identity and his mighty actions. His identity and his mighty actions. So this is a name of his identity that is tied to his holiness. God is holy. Nothing created God. Everything else is created. Nothing else is as holy as he is. The only way that you get to be holy is becoming more like him because he's the ultimate holy. So his name, Yahweh, is always tied to holiness. His name is always tied to justice. His name is always tied to mercy. His name is tied to his identity as the creator. He's the only one that created anything. I love, and I think we all maybe can jump to some of these verses in our head in Isaiah where it says, I am the Lord. I created everything by myself. There's no one beside me. There is no one like our God. And this is the name that is tied to his identity. But what about his mighty actions? Well, let's go, you know, this idea of, okay, if Abraham spoke the name Yahweh, how come he didn't know the name Yahweh? And the answer is this. Because God never saved Abraham like he saved the Israelites out of Egypt. Now, why that is significant is because just the previous verse, it said that we just read, it said that God will redeem you. That means God is going to purchase the debt that you owe. The, the debt that we owe, of course, is through our sin, we owe our life. But through, through God's provision, through his mighty actions, God is going to save and purchase his people. If you are purchased by him, you belong to him. And, and this is something that Abraham never knew. And God says, you should get excited about this, Moses, because you're about to experience something that even Abraham never experienced. Now, I want to tell you something. When you are under a, a, an ownership of God, when you are in a relationship with God, you have experienced something that no one else outside has experienced. When you are in connection with God, you have something that no one else has. That is God's faithfulness. That is God's relationship. I love that song that says God is a, a way maker. Uh, how's it go? Uh, a miracle worker, a promise keeper, right? And this is, that, that is who he is. That is who God is. So when we worship the name, we're worshiping a God of, of, of creation and holiness and his mighty actions. He parted the Red Sea to save his people, his mighty actions. And we see, why is he doing all of this? Well, there's this great little verse. After they get across the Red Sea, this verse says, Thou in thy mercy hast led forth the people, Exodus 15, 13, which thou hast redeemed, purchased. And what, what's the purpose here? Thou hast guided them in thy strength unto thy holy habitation. What, what's God trying to do with the Israelites? He's trying to get them to a place where he can dwell with them. He's trying to get the Israelites to a place where they can have access to his presence. What was lost in Eden, God's trying to get them back to a place where he can be connected with his people again. 
I've heard Brother Mooney's favorite New Testament word is access. Because through the blood, there's access. Through relationship, there's access to the presence of God. Amen. So are we doing okay? All right, we're kind of building up here. I've got like a lot of slides, and then I go take off really fast at the end. So let's go to 1979, just a few short years ago. And uh, in Jerusalem, there were some archaeologists digging around in some caves. And to make a long story short, they almost bypassed these little things, and they actually thought they were cigarette butts. They were just so small, these little things that were just rolled up. And they ended up picking them up and realized that it was metallic. So they started to unravel them, and it took them several years. I think I have it written down, three years, three years to unravel these things. But they slowly started to uh, study these things very carefully, and then they realized that this is actually writing from the Bible. These are, these are called the, the silver amulets, and these are some of the, the very oldest writings in archaeology that we have of Scripture. And the cool thing to me is the first word that they found, Brother Chris, is the word or the name of Yahweh. And then they realized these amulets are actually quoting Numbers chapter 6. So let's take a look at what Numbers chapter 6 says. Brother Zach, I'm going to have you read, read this. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. And they shall put my name upon the children of Israel, and I will bless them. And they, this is called the high priestly benediction. And why I love this so much is because this is what the high priests were supposed to pray over the congregation of the people. And that last line sums it up. And they shall put my name, Yahweh, upon the people. And what's going to happen if the name of Yahweh is upon the people? I will bless them. Now, you have to know this about Old Testament theology, that wherever the name of a God was called, that thing belonged to that God. Where in this, and you can read this, you can study this out. This is not only the name of the true God, but the name of any God. Wherever a name of a God was declared, that is actually where that God would dwell. So when it says that you shall put, they shall, excuse me, the priest shall put my name upon the people, that is God saying, if my name is there, my presence is going to be there. If my name is there, I'm going to be in relationship with those people. The name of Yahweh is equivalent to Yahweh himself. And I think that is just so amazing. Let's take it a step further. In Exodus 25, God tells Moses, have the people build me a sanctuary. Why? So that I can dwell among them. So the tabernacle is built. And uh, see, I know there's a lot of CCS students in here. You probably built one of these back in Sister Barkas's class. Fond memories, I'm sure. And so this is where the throne of God on earth was supposed to be. The tabernacle was built, and in the last chapter of Exodus, what happens? The people are all around the tabernacle, and then the presence of God moves into the tabernacle as a very thick cloud. Now, God, of course, was not the cloud. It was a representation of his, of his glory and of his presence. But God comes in in a way that was so powerful that Moses cannot even go in to the tent. This was God saying, I am here. My name is here. 
I am in relationship with you. Amen. Now let's go to the very, I told you, we hit a lot of scriptures. I'm sorry, not really, but. So let's go to the last book of Moses, Brother Zach. Ye shall utterly destroy all the places wherein the nations which ye shall possess serve their gods, upon the high mountains and upon the hills and under every green tree. So this is some of the last commands that Moses gives to the Israelites. This is the last book that he writes. He's, this is the last several speeches. He's unfortunately going to die right after this. He's not going to go in to the promised land. But he's giving a commandment to the people that when you get there, you are to destroy every false idol. You are to destroy everything that re- represents idol worship or pagan worship. Because it's not enough just to say that you live for God. It's not enough just to say that, well, I'm a Christian. What the Bible teaches is that you have to stand for truth, but you also have to stand against evil. It's not enough just to be in society and say, well, I love God. You also have to say, I love God and I hate anything that is wicked. I hate anything that tears down God. I hate anything that, that even tears people down. Because God doesn't want us to live in societies where people are torn down. And I'm not teaching like positive, positive thinking or, you know, just we all just need to be lifted up. I'm not talking about that. Because w- but when you live with God in pure relationship, there's a peace there. And that's what God's will is. Let's go to verse 3, Brother Zach. And ye shall overthrow their altars and break their pillars and burn their groves with fire. And ye shall hoe down the graven images of their gods and destroy the names of them out of that place. So I told you that whole idea of destroying, or, or rather, the names of a God being called over something, that's not only about Yahweh. Moses, God through Moses tells the people, when you get to that promised land, you are to destroy everything, even the names of those gods out of that place. Because when you're called by another name, there are some names that you just don't want to be associated with. There are just some things that you don't want to align yourself with. And interestingly enough, uh, I studied Revelation over the summer, and there's a really interesting thing that caught my eye, that when you get to Revelation 13 and the mark of the beast, the mark of the beast is also called the mark of his name. So you're going to have a name called over you. No matter whether it's a satanic name or God's name, you're going to have a name called over you, and you will go to dwell with whatever name your allegiance aligns to. To me, that's a very powerful thought. Again, the names of gods. Now, these two pictures are just little representations, two representations of gods that the Israelites were going to be moving in with, or or the land, excuse me. The one on the right is the the god Baal. We know this one. That's the one, you know, where Elijah goes up, and they say, Baal, send the fire. and, and, And Elijah says, you know, let the true God send forth fire, and we know that story. Baal was a like the thunder, the rain god, and there's all kinds of uh, fertility practices along with his name, and I'll just leave it at that, right? Because there's so much uh, debauchery and just so much evil associated with Baal that this is something that God says, this is not going to build a strong family. This is not going to build a strong relationship, a strong community if you have this God in your society. Now, can we think of anything in our society that might compare to that? Many things. And God says, this is not going to build a godly society. 
This is not going to build up people. This one on the left, this is the god Molech. He has a couple different names, but Molech is the one most people recognize him by. And if you've never studied this one, this one is, that's just a very terrifying picture to me. Because this is a god where he's made of bronze, mainly, with a hollow stomach and the head of a bull. And they would heat up the stomach to where his hands would be glowing in some circumstances. Sometimes his hands were laid out like this and the fire was beneath them. But they would, as you can see from this picture, that the high priest is holding an infant. And they would place the live infant on the arms of that glowing statue. And I'm not trying to be morbid here, but I'm trying to tell you that this is what God was telling the Israelites. You don't need this. You don't need this in your society. And everybody else, you see the other priests, they're blowing trumpets, they're banging drums, and the history says that they were playing flutes to drown out the cries of the baby. Because what good father would not try to rescue his screaming child? But in our society today, this same type of thing is being glorified as a right. Now, of course, we need to love people and have grace and help people out of circumstances. We know that. I think you understand my heart. I'm not trying to you know, come down on people. But what I'm trying to say is God is trying to get the Israelites to understand this kind of stuff does not bless you. And you're to de- you are to destroy this stuff. You're not even to mention these gods. Because th- this is kind of the next part. This is what's so great about this, is that if you are under God's name, this stuff has to go through that or him before it can get to you. This is about protection. This is about if you align yourself with God, there are some things that can't touch you. There are some things that are not going to mess your life up because you say, I'm de- I am in devotion to God. You know, today we don't call them Molech. We call them things like abortion or, or maybe we give them other labels like alcohol or maybe, uh, maybe a liar or gossip or some type of addict. Those are the things we call our gods today. But a lot of times we just kind of shove them off. It was a good day back in February when the United Methodist Church took a stand for traditional marriage. It's going to take some courage in our day and age to not only say I'm a Christian, but also say I hate evil things too. It's going to take some courage to do that. Amen. Next, verse 4. You shall not do so unto the Lord your God, but unto the place which the Lord your God shall choose out of all your tribes to put his name there. Even unto his habitation shall ye seek, and thither shall not, thou shalt not, thou shalt come. Thou shalt come, yes, thank you. So, God is saying, look, once you destroy all these things, I have a very special place in mind. Now, God here does not tell us where that one place is. But there's a prophecy, Brother Lincoln, that there is going to be a place where God is going to put his name. God is going to find a place. His name is going to be there. He is going to dwell there. And that is going to be just this, excuse me, this time where it's, it's a fulfillment of relationship. and it's, it's purity. It's exclusive worship. Because if you want relationship, you have to deal with the sin issue. This is, this is something, you know, we might say it like this. Obedience is required. Now, I don't know if you were here a couple weeks ago when Brother Kilman taught on uh, Aiken, but that was a phenomenal lesson. If you have not heard it, you need to listen to it or figure out a way to, to hear it. And, and that was just, that was an amazing lesson that touched my heart. 
Because there's no such thing in God's mind as partial commitment. There's no such thing as partial commitment. If you want God to protect you, and you're under his umbrella, these other gods cannot hurt you. Amen. So I'm trying to keep going here. So let's go ahead another five, well, approximately 500 years. And what do we find? God found his place. First of all, King David is just this great man of God. Because, And I eventually want to develop a lesson on this because I think this is a really powerful thought as well. But David is so amazing to me because there's just this little line in 2 Samuel chapter 5 where it says that David goes up to defeat the Philistines on the top of this hill and the Philistines run away. But the Philistines leave their idols there. And this little line says, and David and his men burned the idols. So why do you think later on all the good kings are compared to David? Because the next thing that is said is Hezekiah was after David, his father, because, and then it says, he destroyed all the idols. And so there's this idea that David is, is the man after God's own heart. David is the king. David is the godly man. And David sets his palace, his capital, in a place called Jerusalem. David brings the peace to the land. And God says, okay, here are the plans to the house of God that will be built. But you can't build it, David. Your son is going to build it. So now we come to one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, 1 Kings chapter 8. And this is the dedication of the temple. This is Solomon, David's son. He builds the temple. It's grand. It's, it's magnificent. It's beautiful. And, and Solomon is going to call the people together to put God on his throne. This is a depiction of the Ark of the Covenant. And the priests are carrying that quote-unquote throne of God into his house or his palace. Brother Zach, I'm going to have you read it a little bit more. Your voice doing okay back there? All right. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel in Jerusalem that they might bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And all the men of Israel assembled themselves unto King Solomon at the feast in the seventh month. There's so much here just in these two verses. Remember, covenant also means relationship. The Ark of the Covenant was a testimony that God, Yahweh, and the people of Israel were connected. But also, you can take a look. We don't have time, but this feast in the seventh month, you should look that up because this was a feast that celebrated the exit from Egypt with the longing and the anticipation of coming into the promised land. Now, to me, what we're looking at right here is a fulfillment of the promised land. Even though this is hundreds of years after Joshua, to me, this is, this is where God says, I'm bringing you here so that I can be in relationship with you. And let's, let's, read, uh, let's read a little bit more here from 1 Kings chapter 8. And the Lord hath performed his word that he spake, and I am risen up in the room of David my father, and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised, and have built an house for the name of the Lord God of Israel. So let's take this piece by piece here. First of all, let us understand, and this is going to be just real far out there, but God is faithful. God is faithful. What we're tracking here are some promises that were even a thousand years before this event. It may have taken a thousand years, but guess what? God still keeps his promises. God is still faithful. If God kept his promise yesterday, God's going to keep his promise today, and he's going to keep his promise tomorrow. God is still faithful. 
What else do we have up here? Solomon builds a house for what? The name of the Lord. Now, if you read this chapter, you're going to see that phrase all over the place. That Solomon is building this place specifically for the name of the Lord. A little, little bit more here. I should stop saying that. It's really loud. And it came to pass when the priests were come out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. So just as it happened with Moses, just as it happened with the tabernacle, the temple also has this magnificent moment where the glory of God comes in and God is saying, this is where I am going to dwell. This is my house. This is where we are going to have relationship together. That, that glory of God, this is a visible manifestation of his presence. This is a way that God is showing them, I am here. So what can we gather from this? That obedience, God is always going to be faithful to dwell with you if you are obedient. That's the next step. Now, I was, as I was studying for this several months ago, I was reading a non-Pentecostal, and I was uh, just kind of reading through a couple things here, and he made this great statement. He said, you know, and, and this, this event and the, the tabernacle event is so significant because if you go to Acts chapter 2, the apostles would have understood what it meant when a rushing mighty wind filled the house. And the apostles would have understood that they were now the temples. And, and it wasn't, this isn't about uh, God's presence dwelling in a, in a building anymore, but God has now transferred his presence inside of earthen vessels. And I was just thinking, amen, because that's exactly it. This is what the presence of God is about. In Acts chapter 5, Peter says, God gives the Holy Ghost to those that obey him. It is a gift. But if you don't obey God, you won't get very far. This is a depiction of what it may have looked like inside of what we call the most holy place. The Ark of the Covenant with the, the cherubim and the massive cherubim there as the guardians of God's holiness. This was a place where Israel was supposed to have access to their God. This is where the sacrifices and the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat. This was a place of forgiveness. This was a place where his name was supposed to dwell. And, we, and I just love it because his name, again, is tied to his identity and his mighty actions. So this was to, if God's name was here, you were going to approach the name of God. You were going to approach the God of forgiveness, the God of holiness, the God that created everything, the God that delivered them out of Egypt, the God that saved them and, and, and now is living in their midst. This chapter actually holds the longest prayer in the Bible. A little, little random side note. Uh, God said no stairs on their altars, so just pretend that's a ramp, okay? So what Solomon does is he ties, this is the longest prayer in the Bible. He ties his prayer to his ancestors, and then he prays for the future. Let's take a look at just a little bit of this. In, in essence, this is what Solomon is saying, and I'm trying to wrap this up. i got a little bit more here. God, you have kept your promises 
So guide our future. He says, please, Lord, let this temple be a way for sinful people to come back to you. He makes all of these statements. He says things like this. Lord, if we sin and you send an army to us, if we turn back to you, save us. Well, does that happen? Yes. He says, Lord, if we sin and you shut off the rain and we repent and come back to you, please bless our land again. Well, does that happen? 1 Kings chapter 8 is the Second Chronicles version where, and we all know this, but not, not everybody knows where this is found or what it's about, but we always quote, if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray. This, those, the, these events we're talking about is exactly what was said in 2 Chronicles 7.14. If you're called by the name, then you better act like the name wants you to act. That's what's going on here. And to me, this is so amazing. Uh, Solomon says something like this. God, if we sin and you carry us away, you read it. I'm not making this up. He says, if we sin and you carry us away to a foreign land. Does that happen? Yes. What does Solomon pray? If we turn our eyes toward your temple, hear us and bring us back. What does Daniel do three times a day? In a foreign land. He was from Jerusalem. What did he do three times a day? He opened up his window and turned toward where the temple used to stand. You read it. Jonah chapter 2. Jonah is in the belly of this great fish. What does he say? I turn my eyes towards your temple. He didn't know which direction it was. So he just said, God, I am doing my best. I'm turning my eyes towards your temple and I'm repenting. And what does God do? God hears his prayer. So Solomon is asking, Lord, let this always be a place. If we come back to you, always let this place where your name is, let us be here as well. But the problem is, is that more idols have been found in Jerusalem than any other part of Israel. The place where the temple was is where the most pagantry has been found. So, of course, the question for us today, is the church the place with more idolatry than the world? Do we hold more evil in this place or in our hearts than people in the world do? Are we watching TV shows that, although they may be extremely, extremely popular, God would not approve of them? Are we wasting our time in frivolous things to where we can't even have time for God? Now, I'm preaching to myself, too. I think you understand that. But what we should try to really hold on to is the fact that God has more for us if we get connected to him. But if, if we're going to if we're going to follow this, what happened to Jerusalem, it in fact was destroyed. And the people were carried away. Because they did not follow God's plan. But as we said earlier, man keeps messing up. And God keeps providing a way. So this is where I want to pick things up a little bit, because even though back in Genesis, God's name was tied to relationship, things do not change in the New Testament. Things do not change as far as we still need a name. And it says that Mary is going to have a son. 
And his name is going to be Jesus. The name Jesus means Yahweh has become salvation. Now think about that for a moment. All of this Old Testament stuff we're talking about, that was Yahweh. And the name Jesus means Yahweh has become salvation. Now we know that Yahweh is God in the flesh as a man. But what I love about this is that Jesus came to fulfill what his name meant. Jesus came to do what the meaning of his name demonstrated. This to me is so powerful. Because what we're going to see, and this is laid out all over in the book of John, when it says that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Anybody remember that verse? John 1.14. When it says dwelt, that word can also be translated as tabernacled. God tabernacled in the man, Jesus. Jesus was the walking, earthly temple. All over in the book of John, you're going to see this. Jesus says throughout, he says, I have come in my Father's name. Well, what is that? Well, it's Yahweh. Jesus says, the Holy Spirit, the Father, will send in my name. So what, what do we see here? We see temple and tabernacle language that Jesus is the walking tabernacle. So I'm trying to, we're, we're wrapping up here. We got just a little bit more to go. I know I keep saying that, but I'm getting excited. Because what we, what, why is the name of Jesus so powerful? Why do we baptize in Jesus' name? When we lay our hands on the sick and we pray in Jesus' name, are we just doing it because we were taught it in Sunday school? Are we just praying in Jesus' name because, you know, well, the Bible just says to do everything in the name of Jesus. Yes, but why? Because of all of this is about a name. Just as in the book of Exodus, his name is tied to his identity and his mighty actions. Well, we've already established his identity. His identity is Yahweh, God in the flesh. That is who Jesus is. That is his identity. But what about his mighty actions? What about his mighty actions? What about his death on the cross? What about his redeeming your soul? What about him defeating death, hell, and the grave? Oh, grave, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? Where All these things Jesus has put under his feet. He has destroyed and conquered all of the enemies that tied us down. So why do we pray in Jesus' name? Because it is the name that brings us back to access with God. It's the name of relationship. It's the name of covenant. Okay, and I love what Pastor Mooney said just a few Sunday nights ago. I watched the, the service online, and he said, you can't command God to do anything. You can't just throw something out there and say, and act like the name of God is a magic trick, because it's not. God honors those that he is in relationship with. This is why when we, are, we say we're Jesus' name people, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about a relationship. My favorite verse in the Bible Neither is there salvation. Can we just read this together? Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Thank God for the name. Thank God for the name. Brother M.D. Treese was a pastor down in Louisiana. He's got a two, uh, in, in our movement, he's got a two-volume set on the book of Acts. 
And he says in the Greek, when it says baptizing in the name of Jesus, it's the equivalent of saying calling upon the name of the Lord. So when people say, all you have to do is call upon the name of the Lord and be saved, you should ask them, well, do you know what that means? Because it's, again, there's not much difference between Old and New Testament. Calling upon the name of the Lord in the Old Testament was having God's name called over the people to show that they belong to him. In the New Testament, it's no different. Because baptism, we got to make sure that we understand baptism completely. Because baptism, when you go down in the water, two things happen. Your sins are forgiven. But the second thing is, if you have the name of God called over you, if you have the name of Jesus called over you, you are now in covenant. You are now in relationship with him, and you belong to him. We can't forget that second part. This is not about a trinity. This is not about whatever, make up your scenario. This is about complete baptism. This is about having the name of God called over you. Because wherever God's name is called, that is where he's going to dwell. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runneth into it and is safe. Amen. I'm going to have the music come. Let's go back to 1 Kings 8. Throughout Solomon's petitions, he's praying for Israel, but then he switches. And Solomon begins to pray for foreigners. He shifts to non-Israelites. And this is what he says. Moreover, concerning a stranger that is not of thy people, Israel, but cometh out of a far country for thy name's sake. For they shall hear of thy great name, his identity, and of thy strong hand and thy stretched out arm, his mighty actions. When he shall come and pray towards this house, hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place, and do according to all that the stranger calleth thee for, that all the people of the earth may know thy name, to fear thee, as do thy people Israel, that they may know that this house which I have builded is called by thy name. So what does that mean for us today? Paul says it like this, Know ye not that you are a temple of the living God? Ephesians 2, we are a house fitly framed together for the habitation of the Spirit. So if you have the name of God called over you, and you are His temple, you are now the access point for every person that you meet that does not have the name. It is now your job to show them what the name is like. It is now up to you to show them what it means to be a pure temple. It's up to you to show people that when they see you, they should see you destroying the names of other gods that don't lift up the true God. When they see you, they should see the word Christian actually means Christ-like. This is so challenging to me because I love the name of Jesus. And I don't just love it because it's a magic word and I keep going back to that, but I love it because that's how I got relationship with the Almighty God, because He's holy and I'm not. 
And I want other people to know that if you want salvation, if you want to be saved, if you want to be touched, if you want freedom, if you want to be saved from the curse that sin brings in your life, there is a name. I had a sixth grader in my classes last year, and she came up to me one day, and she laid a piece of paper on my desk, and she said, Brother Herbst, I wrote a sermon. And to be honest with you, I kind of thought, oh, well, that's nice. You know, I'll, I'll read it when I get a chance. But she asked me like every 15 minutes if I had read it for like days. and Not days, but it was a while. And so finally, I put it on my list because I kind of forgot about it. I had to put it on my list, and so I read it. And I had her preach it like that next chapel. Because she said, I was praying one day. And I really felt God impress upon me that I needed to be a witness to my mom. Because my mom doesn't go to church. And she said, I went to my mom and I gave her a Bible. And then she said, Mom, you know, you can watch Calvary Tabernacle online. If you can't make it to the service, you can just watch it online. It doesn't take a lot to be a witness. Amen. So if we can all stand. If you have the name, you are a strong tower for the Lord. So my challenge to you right now is twofold. I've asked them to sing this song. This is probably my favorite song. My challenge to you is twofold is this. If you need to get under that name, now is the time. If you need to realign yourself with that name, now is the time. If you want to be a witness for that name, pray that right now God would empower you to do so. And as they sing the song, I'm not going to ask people to come. If you just want to lift up your hands right now, let's give glory and honor to that name. Because I want his name to dwell here. I want his name to be in my life. I want his name to be at my school. I want God's name to be lifted up. I want God's name to be glorified in all that I do because he has a great name. In his name there is salvation. In his name there is power. Through relationship. Hallelujah.